I'm Isabeau. I'm Morgan. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About lavender fields. About bonnets. About Kansas. About secret babies. About hard farm labor. About tractors. About bad moms. About hot English dudes. (laughs) About faith. (laughs) About Jesus. About insular communities. About rigged volleyball tournaments for sex. About barn raisin. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we are kicking off our Entropy series with Amish romance. Woo. 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 (laughs) So before we reveal our book and our listener who recommended it, who is actually a fellow romance reviewer and social media icon, not that we're social media icons, (laughs) just a fellow reviewer and also an icon. I think we should get into why we are hesitant about Amish romance novels. Yes. Personally, I'm not super duper into sweet romances, so on its face, Amish isn't something that I was interested in, but Mm. also the idea of a space that takes place in the modern era, but is assiduously white Mm -hmm. without dealing with any of the political sort of any of it is like a space to carve out white supremacy without dealing with any of its ugliness because it's like, oh, it's the Amish. You can't say that because it's the Amish. And it's like, I see what you did there, though. Yeah, yeah. Same. And, you know, I understand why I'm not interested in carving out white supremacist spaces pretty well. But one thing that I I kind of challenged myself on is, is why do I have a resistance to the idea of sweet romance? Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think I'm going to confront on this episode. If I was being like the laziest interrogator in the world, right? I would say like, well, I enjoy reading about sex and romance. And I think that's true. But I think I would also maybe say like, oh, like there's something shamey about a fade to black or there's something sex negative about a sweet romance. And I would say that, you know, taking the time reading this book and also looking back on romance novels that we've read that I thought really slapped. I think I came to a different conclusion on that, Mm -hmm. on sweet romances in general. I think that's fair. One of the amazing things that this novel made me confront about my feelings about sweet romance is that this has actually been quite ingrained in my reading for a long time. And I can actually pinpoint it to a moment where I had a conversation with someone in high school about fan fiction. You know, she's like, oh, I never turn on the M because like, I don't know what else is out there. And she's a very sweet friend. And I was like, I only read M because if you're not ready to confront sex like an adult, most of the other writing isn't usually that good. Like I notice it as like a quality measure. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, M is a filter on archive of art own. Does fanfiction.net use it too? Fanfiction.net uses it too. And uh, I have a funny fanfiction.net story for you aside (laughs) once I finish this point. But M stands for mature and means that there is explicit sexual content in a work of fanfiction. But you were also reading it as like, if it's M, not only does it have explicit sex, but that goes hand in hand with like a maturity 
quality of writing. Right. And like an actual marker of quality. If you can't captivatingly write a sex scene, then you can't captivatingly write or confidently write a sex scene. Right. Or like you can't deal with like the other kinds of adult themes. And like I recognize that I have a very clear memory of this conversation. It's amazing to me how long that idea just really resonated in the back of my reading preferences where I'm like, well, if you can't write a sex scene, like how mature is your writing anyway? As like a sort of very condescending, I'll admit, quick review for me where I'm like, oh, you have like a shitty sex scene, not a strong writer. And this was a book that like, since I had to read it and I wanted to do so with an open mind, I really had to interrogate where that animus came from and like Uh why I have it and to really look at it. And this book was a good opportunity for me to do so. Yes. So my funny fanfiction.net story. Mm -hmm. So I had accounts on Archive of Our Own and fanfiction.net when I was doing my master's thesis so that I could contact authors and ask them questions and, and things like that. But I never published under it or reviewed under it or commented under it. The other day I got like an email that like someone has sent you a direct message on fanfiction.net. That's a thing, right? Yep. And I opened it up and it was someone like basically doing that thing that they do on Instagram where they send you a message request and they're like, I'm bored and horny. Want to see pictures? That's so Isn't weird. That weird. So anyways, that was shocking to me. That is shocking. Also have a very weird fanfiction.net story. I got an update from a fanfic that I started following in 2012 that hadn't updated since 2016. And they'd like updated. So then I totally forgot what the thing was about. So I had to go back and reread the whole thing. And I was like, oh, this is a really good update. Four years in the making. I mean, it, it wasn't that strong. What fandom was it? Pride and Prejudice. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> now that that's out of the way, the book that we are reading is The Wish by Patricia Davids. By Patricia Davids. I'll read the and back. Yes, please read the back. Second chances come at the most unexpected times. Widow Laura Beth Yoder longs for a family of her own, so much so that she's preparing to leave the sleepy Amish town she calls home to find love. But a terrible storm washes out the creek, forcing her to wade in and save the life of an Englishman and his adorable infant son. As they recover at the farm, the baby brings sunshine and joy while the handsome outsider is filled with shadows and secrets. Joshua King owes his life and his sons to Laura Beth. Still lingering at her farm is out of the question. He must fulfill a promise he made to his estranged wife on her deathbed to deliver their son to his Amish in-laws. With his dark past, Joshua has no other choice. But his plans never took this sweet and surprising Amish widow into account. She just might be his second chance at happiness and love. Love it. It's so dramatic. It's so dramatic. Oh my God. Quite a stormy back of the book, B.O.B. right there. The Amish of Cedar Grove series was recommended to us by Jackie Reads Romance on Instagram. We had the hardest time getting Amish recommendations. We really did. And so Jackie Reads Romance really helped us out with some recommendations. I think it would be a good idea on our blog to actually post all of the books that were recommended to us for Mm -hmm. people who are super into these tropes to find new good stuff. Although I'm sure if you're super into Amish romance, sorry, you're probably already familiar with Jacqueline Francis and Kira Andrews and Kelly Long and of course, Patricia Davids. But the main reason we chose this from the list of authors recommended to us by Jackie Reads Romance is because we had this book. 
We did. We got it for free. At RWA. Was it RWA? I think so. It was because I had the Russ and Daughters postcard as a bookmark in there. So that was why it won out. But there was some stuff that I found as I was reading the book that probably would have drawn me to it anyways, not least of which it's set in Kansas, my home state. Mm-hmm. And at first I was like, we have lots of Mennonite people. I don't think we have Amish people. But then they mentioned Yoder. And I was like, mm-hmm. of course, Yoder, Kansas. Lots of people, you will find yourselves driving through Kansas because it's the middle of the state. And you will find an opportunity to exit the highway, check out Yoder, Kansas. And I think you should because there are two things, great antique stores. Mm. Fantastic prices and really good restaurants. Mm. A really good restaurant in Yoder. Because the Amish baking and cooking tradition is alive and well. Very strong. Having spent all of my life in the Midwest. But one of the things about living in Chicago that I really miss about Missouri and Kansas is these big storms that Mm. roll in and how they're like two kinds. There's the kind that you can see for hours across the plains with these towering white clouds and it like gets closer and closer and that amazing smell washes over you before Mm. the storm finally breaks. And just like the pleasure of watching weather, which I know sounds so dumb, but like is such a special experience of that part of the Midwest or like this storm that like breaks out of nowhere and like it's sunny and then like all of a sudden it's pouring and like Chicago's weather and storm is very tempered by the lake and so we don't really get big storms like that very often and so reading this book it was like putting on a really comfortable robe and being like here's somebody who loves and lives in the Midwest and can really talk about the hills and the rocks it was so lovely to fall into that space and to be reminded that as silly as it is, I really do love weather. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I also was thinking about the storm, especially because we have had some mm-hmm. big loud ones here in Chicago. And I remember thinking on, I think it was like Thursday morning, like, what would this storm be like if we didn't have the lake? You know, like a really big one. The author, Patricia Davids, does live in that area, kind of north central Kansas, which is an objectively beautiful part of the world. I think the plains of southwest Kansas are beautiful, but I understand mm-hmm. that that tends to be a more subjective choice. But even though this book doesn't really highlight that, it did remind me of these states that people avoid most of the time actually have really, especially Kansas, in my opinion, have a really (laughs) rich and interesting history and lots of fascinating small communities. You know, I think about Nicodemus, Kansas, with the thatched roofs and was also a place for black settlers. Mm -hmm. You know, Lecompton, which is right outside of Lawrence. Lecompton was the only city to propose a pro-slavery constitution for the state of Kansas. And it's right next to Lawrence, Kansas, which was definitely the abolitionist outpost in the state and perhaps in the entire West. And so it's just, you know, cool restaurants, beautiful scenery. Oh, what's the other one? The Swedish town. Lindsborg, Lindsborg, Mm. Kansas. Big basketball town as well. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. That's just my ad for taking an exit and supporting some of the really small towns in Kansas because they have a lot to offer. They would just be tickled to death to have you (laughs) stop by and and they need the support. Yeah. And like instead of taking, you know, the trip that you were going to fly, you know, maybe just drive. I think we've really covered the setting. I think. (laughs) Well, okay. So they are isolated, which is a thing 
anything that can happen in Kansas still. There are miles and miles and miles and miles of unpaved dirt roads. And the reason we were talking about a storm is that is where our book opens. Our hero is driving through a storm with a baby in the back seat on one of these dirt roads about to cross a creek. So I guess we should start with our hero. God willing in the creek don't rise. <laughs> the creek did rise. God the willing rise. in the creek does rise. That should have been the tagline for the book. I know. <laughs> Anyway, it's not particularly Amish. <laughs> Joshua King is an ex-Amish handyman. He left the faith when he was 17 and sort of became a jack-of-all-trades drifter. Not too long after that, he met... The preferred professional choice of serial killers. It is, really. Anyway, like it's very little to recommend him. <laughs> at some point, he's hanging out with these roughnecks and he's at a diner and they're, of course, accosting a young and modest Amish girl and he asked them to leave her alone and then she's like I want to go with you and then he takes Amy out of her faith and they are married and it's kind of rocky they don't know a ton about each other yeah they just he, blow town she doesn't blow, tell her parents no two kids Jack and Diane I guess um, sucking on a chili dog <laughs> outside the tasty freeze what a gross way to eat a chili dog seriously but like that's like that signature high school slutty Diane yeah. move it is. It really is. If you only have three moves, like, you know, one of them's going to be sucking down a chili dog. My high school could not, did not have the resources to serve lunch to every student. And so we had off-campus lunch, which is a terrible idea for high schoolers, for teenagers to let them leave school. And so we would, oh my God, I don't know how else to describe it. We would surge on to the Pizza Hut buffet. <laughs> And they had like this whole horrid system to just manage the high schoolers who would come to this buffet. We had a discounted rate. We had our own sodas. Amazing. So we wouldn't interfere with the regular guests. Amazing. And this girl, she used to get the cinnamon sticks with the vanilla frosting you could dip. So good. And would just eat it in the gross, like, you know, in like a very suggestive way for Obviously. like the dreamy boys to, you know, fantasize. But she would just end up with like the soggiest <laughs> cinnamon stick. Oh my god. Just the least erotic thing you can imagine. Oh totally. Oh, god. Oh my gosh. Uh yeah, but our heroin makes cinnamon buns. It all works. Shit, all the time. Um, it all connects. It does. There are no loose ends on your woman. <laughs> Tight. Point. Anyway. Just thinking about that cinnamon stick after like the third pass. Oh my God. The kind of visualization we bring you here on Womance is like a 15 year old in a pizza hut. <laughs> Filating a cinnamon stick until it's droopy and wet. Ironically, after the third pass, pretty much everyone's like eroticism was likewise the cinnamon stick. Just like, oh, <laughs> ugh. Uh, that's funny. I know what you're asking. Did she have braces? I'm pretty sure she did. That obviously, I'm now envisioning it, not just braces, but also full on headgear. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Amy okay. 
and Joshua have this kind of like not great marriage for a lot of reasons. She begs him not to take this job that feels pretty underhanded and under the table. He takes it despite her misgivings and turns out that he's been asked to haul stolen, very expensive drilling equipment across state lines. He gets picked up by the feds, spends six months in jail because he admits that he's guilty, does his time. When he gets back, Amy's gone and then he doesn't hear from her for quite some time and then he gets a call. Amy's on her deathbed. She's got the cancer and she says, hey, BG Dubs, you got a son and I want you to take him to Kansas uh, Mm -hmm. to be raised by my Amish parents Mm -hmm. who she has never talked about. And then she dies two days later, which Mm -hmm. brings us to Joshua on the dirt road in Kansas trying to find the Amish. He has his release papers, all of his personal documents in the glove compartment along with like $5,000 in cash that Amy's friends pulled for the baby for his future. Seemingly, I think it was like for college or something. So seemingly not fully understanding. (laughs) It was just like, here's money. We don't know what else to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do want to pause because I want to talk about inspirational romance and I want to talk about the circumstances surrounding Amy's death. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is heavy stuff, be forewarned. But Amy is diagnosed with, I think, leukemia? Yep. Leukemia. Very early on in her pregnancy. It goes unsaid in the novel, but decides not to end her pregnancy and get chemotherapy. Also decides not to get chemotherapy. I don't think it's recommended, period, when you're pregnant, right? No, you have to terminate your pregnancy and then begin treatment. And so Amy decides to go the full duration of nine months without uh, any chemotherapy so that she can deliver her son. Mm-hmm. And then once that happens, it's basically too late. She goes from treatable cancer to terminal. Yes. Yeah. So like those details are not brought forward. We do know that she basically just decided to have the baby and did not seek out chemotherapy. And I think it is mentioned that she knew about the cancer very early on in her pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so I think the faith part of this book is mostly in between the lines. I would say mostly, but it's definitely like it's not subtext so much as it's like the pause between sentences. Yes, exactly. That's that's what I'm struggling. I'm like, it's not at all subtext. Yeah. You know that these are people of faith, but mm-hmm. the real ramifications of that and the real sacrifices that that requires on behalf of our characters is never stated outright. It's never said choice not to have an abortion, right? Is never mm-hmm. spaketh out loud. No. In um, fact, they refer to her as like the bravest self-sacrificing mother that any of them know because she knew and dis- yeah. still decided to go forward with the pregnancy. She is a martyr for her child. Yes. And it turns out a martyr for her ex-husband future happiness because our ex-con with a glove compartment full of cash is in a big hurry to get to his in-law's house. They've never met him. They don't know who he is, by the way. He's yep. in a big hurry to get there because he's got to get down to Oklahoma because he has a drilling job, which yep. a kind of job is very hard to get when you're an ex-con. And I think he also would have to have gotten special permission to cross state lines. He did. He had his release papers and also his probation officers, uh, whatever, whatever. Like he had very important documents with him other than his driver's license. And this book is, I think, very clear-eyed about the difficulties of being a person with a prior conviction. 
to be fair, go. this this book uses the term ex-con. Yes. But we won't hear because we believe in people first language. That's why we have the prisonstudiesproject.org to help us out. True story. Yeah, I think this book actually does a really good job. One of the interactions that you see Joshua have repeatedly with both people that he interacts with in the Amish community and with Laura Beth, our heroine, and mm. his people trying to hire him for jobs. It's like basically the third thing that he says about himself. He's like, yes, yeah. I had trouble with the law. This is what I did. This is why I did it. I made mistakes. It's not who I am. I'll show mm-hmm. up for you. At every one of those moments, whenever he reveals himself and his status as a person with a prior conviction, people have what you would hope is their reaction, where they're like, oh, yes. I saw it on your record. It gave me pause, but you've been so upfront about it. Thank you so much. Your mm-hmm. candor makes me trust you. He goes across the bridge. Crick rose, so it's flooded. His car goes off the bridge, and he is saved by a guardian angel in the form of Lara Beth Yoder. Lara Beth Yoder. She is an Amish widow. Mm-hmm. She's living with her sister. She has her own plot of land. She's a progressive thinker for the Amish, meaning like she farms things that other people don't. She yeah. has a pumpkin patch, and she's interested in tourism around that. She has a lavender field and some goats, and she kind of is getting into the beauty industry. Mm-hmm. Of course, they all make their own soap, but she also sells hers and thinks of it as, you know, a specialty product and scents it and, and kind of understands the higher end handmade industry, which I thought was really interesting because in my previous or I guess technically my current job. <laughs> I was looking into some interesting like Airbnb experiences, but it wasn't Airbnb. I can't remember what it was, but one of the offers was to live with this super chic Mennonite family in rural Illinois for a weekend. And you would do things like churn butter, make your own soap, craft furniture, stay in their house, have your meals provided. And it was this really high end experience. And these like beautiful photographs, Isabeau, to sell this experience. And then I found like Mennonite night Instagram. (laughs) Oh, wow. And I think we need to talk about it because like the appeal of this kind of book in our current moment, I think has a lot to do with a um, with an aesthetic that is being cultivated on Mennonite Instagram. So Mennonites are different from Amish folks, including that they can use uh, certain forms of technology, including like electricity. They can have cars. They go to school a little bit longer. I went to school with some girls in the Mennonite church alike in some ways and yeah different in many ways cinnamon rolls that is a way they are alike very sharp knives beautiful draft horses that Uh, that kind of thing and I think you're right it's totally an aesthetic and I think it's right to say that Laura Beth is both really savvy about it the way that she sells her soaps at the farmer's market and the way that she's thinking about how to maneuver outsider interest to meet her own ends that makes her a pretty dynamic character at first when I met her, like the thing that you know immediately and overpoweringly about Laura Beth isn't just that she is a woman, the dead husband, that she is a woman who has yearned for a decade for a child. Yes. It's like omnipresent how much this woman fucking wants a kid. Well, she's and- going to sell her farm, move <laughs> herself and her sister to a different state so that she can potentially meet someone new to marry because their community is so small. Right. Until an outsider just washes up in her backyard. And he's handsome to boot. And he fits in all of Micah's clothes. And he speaks the language. Speaks the language. 
So she rescues him and his baby, takes them to her house, and because his car is totally sunk, he needs to stay with her, and that's fine for the following reasons. They're sleeping in separate rooms. Being former Amish, he is familiar with the practices and the rules and standards, I guess I should say. And because he finds out that his in-laws have actually left, so he can't go and uh, take the baby to them and get on his merry way. Right. And then further, when people ask about it, not only is this okay because of all the reasons that Morgan's just stated, but it's also because of Laura Beth's standing in the community. She's never done anything that would raise suspicion. There's this wonderful line where her neighbor, her best friend, Abigail's husband, Thomas, and he says this thing that I think we hear, especially when we talk about gossip, that his wife, Abigail, even though she doesn't agree with Laura Beth taking in this outsider and his baby, won't hear a word spoken against her. Mm -hmm. I think that's such an interesting turn of phrase when we talk about gossip and this idea of like you won't hear words against and how powerful that statement is in terms of like maneuvering this community that actually functions not unlike romance through word of mouth a lot. And so the way in which Laura Beth's reputation prior to this moment shields her from what could have been pretty intense ostracism and something that Joshua is like constantly worried about. Everybody he meets that isn't Laura Beth or Sarah, her sister, he's like, I don't want to hurt Laura Beth. I don't want to make it hard on her. I know that this could be hard on her. I know that the Amish can be really close minded. It's why I left. Like, I don't want to fuck things up for her is like his constant refrain. And everyone's like, oh, you seem like an upright dude. It's okay. Laura Beth's great. So um, fix her, you know, porch and like milk her goats and we'll call it good. Yeah. She like needs a man around the house. Yeah. Everybody says that. Although the book makes a very important point that she is very physically capable. Yeah. And that she really doesn't need a man around the house. She does now that she has a baby that he brought her. (laughs) So that's kind of interesting. But I think maybe now we should take a moment to talk about what surprised us about this book. Okay. What wasn't expected. Do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? You go first. Okay. I was surprised by how long it took Joshua and Laura Beth to initiate any kind of physical contact outside of the first space of her rescuing him from the car. I thought that a sweet romance would be much more charged and like, and then our shoulders brushed or like, and then our fingertips met on like the butter churn. And there there were a couple of moments (laughs) like that too in particular. But I think one of the things that was really fascinating and surprising to me is like when those moments happen, we then have pages and pages and pages of Laura Beth specifically thinking through why a physical action garnered such a strong emotional response. Um, And I don't think that's very dissimilar from traditional romances, but it was so much. I mean, there's this scene where he's like tinkering with her tractor that hasn't run because it turns Mm -hmm. out that, you know, the scene, Micah wasn't very good at fixing things. He was good at taking things apart. And so he's got grease all over his hands and grease on his face. And she pantomimes this thing that she used to do with her husband, where she's like, no, the grease spots here, no, the grease spots here. And like, ultimately it would have ended with a kiss between her and Micah. And in this, it just ends with her rubbing the grease off of his face. And then she like immediately leaves. And like the scene is so sweet and it's so complex in how Uh the overlay of a really valuable and 
kind-hearted marriage that ended tragically for Laura, Beth, and Micah. Mm -hmm. And then, like, having the ghost of that interact with a stranger who isn't and doesn't really remind you of the person that you used to love but represents a new thing that can come in. And, like, watching those very intense emotional patterns be worked out, I was surprised by how deft and careful and, frankly, considered that work was. And I think Um, also just, like, how captivating it was on a heat level. Yeah, like uh, just insanity. Yeah, it's very sexy. Even though we're talking about like him in relation to a dead husband. Yeah. A lot of the time, whenever they are intimate or have those literal, like it might be a butter churn, but I think it's also like a soap thing. <laughs> yeah. Making soap. Those things are really heated and really fraught and really sparky. Mm-hmm. And I think I was surprised by how sparky it would be, even with the overlay of like a dead husband, where I'm like, ooh, this yeah. feels like it's going to be weird. And like, there's so much yeah. potential for that to be like a miasma rather than just like, <gasps> oh. To me, there's something about, okay, so this kind of gets back to my earlier thing about sweet romance mm-hmm. and what this book made me realize is that it still has like that tingly kind of satisfaction. But to me, I think I would almost say that I enjoyed these books or I enjoy sweet romance in general, thinking about all of those that we've read in the past. I enjoy those more than like a slow burn Mm -hmm. because a slow burn feels like it's delaying the inevitable. Mm -hmm. And a sweet romance (laughs) feels like, you know, you're enjoying, you're not meant to feel any angst or frustration, right? Which, Which can also feel good. In sweet romance, those passing moments that little shade of repression, that is Mm -hmm. the thing. And something about that fact allowed me to enjoy it or like recognize how enjoyable that is more than I have in the past. Yeah, because rather, I think you said it best where it's like, it's not the angst and like in a more explicit romance, like those moments of charge are indeed delaying the inevitable. But here, this is like, this is literally all you're going to (laughs) get. Like, isn't that pleasurable too? Yeah. Isn't that sweet? Yes. And it turns out that it very much is. So I was surprised by how tingly, dare I say sexy, parts of this Amish romance could be. One thing that surprised me was, like, this sounds so broad and is so Mm -hmm. broad, but like, what a pleasure it was to read. And I think that has a lot to do with the aesthetic. Yep. It's like milky light, waking up with fresh brewed dark coffee, pastry on old porcelain, you know, (laughs) Uh, beautiful, open, expansive, quiet spaces. It's made me realize how often in romance, like the world around the romantic relationship is uncomfortable. Yeah. Or like cloistered. And I think like you're so right about like the expansiveness of those Kansas hills and like the sky and the fields that they're constantly talking about just like gives so much space for them to be in. Like they're almost never trapped in the house, which I think in retrospect, I'm actually pretty surprised by because I think that's where you see, especially in a forced proximity romance. Which is what this is because the storm keeps them isolated much longer than they would have been otherwise. Yeah. I was surprised that the openness of this space, they were never caged together like tigers, you know, in like a ramshackle chateau or something. Like that wasn't the thing here. Like there are oftentimes where he just like straight up retreats where she says something that he's just like not into having a conversation about and he'll just like leave for the barn or like leave 
leave for a five and a half hour stroll along the creek bed. And I think that's actually such an interesting use of both the aesthetic, because that's the other thing too. This book takes so long to work. It's actually quite a long book. Mm -hmm. And so much of that is scenery, so much is that aesthetic. And the fact that like for a contemporary, there's very little intrusion of technology. There are like a couple of scenes at a phone booth. There's like one scene with the internet. And like, that's part of the pleasure. The pace is slower and you have time to save your coffee in the cool morning, watching the mist like roll off your lavender before the heat of the day sets in and like how good it feels to have like dirt under your nails and not let modern life and text messages and like pings intrude on like quote unquote what's important. Yeah. In the first movement of the book, they are Mm -hmm. utterly isolated by the storm. But you're right. They have so much space where they're isolated and also kind of speaking to that thing about how like this isn't the angst. This is the thing. Mm -hmm. They probably wouldn't have been visited by a lot of people anyways. Right. Like they have plenty of other ways to function and go about their lives in isolation. There's still plenty to do, which is a problem I have faced currently. Mm -hmm. And I think this book, I know, I know that the fact that I read this in the first two weeks of my quarantine Mm -hmm. has a lot to do with how much I enjoyed it. I honestly don't think I would have liked it as much if my life had continued on the trajectory it was on. You know, Mm -hmm. if I had read this on the train while I was commuting to the office or on Mm -hmm. my lunch break or before I went to bed, like what it showed me was a pleasure in quiet and aloneness and how really expansive being by yourself could be. Mm -hmm. Even though my own aloneness isn't nearly as expansive as our characters. Yeah. um, It almost became a retreat and like a practical retreat. Like it wasn't so far-fetched that I was overwhelmed by the idea of it. Like it was just real enough while I was reading and that made it just better enough than my current situation. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Like I was thinking about, especially in those moments where they have like a simmer or she brings up a sore topic or, you know, he has his feelings hurt. He is just like all raw nerves. And like having the ability for him to retreat and then for her to think about why the conversation went the way that it did, have time for him to fucking cool off and do something. And then they can come back together two and a half chapters later and he can be a rational human and be like, sorry, I like scratched at you. And she's like, no, I get it. Like, la la la. And it's like, boy, when you only have 950 square feet, it's really hard to retreat to your own corners, but also to like be aware of that. And like, that really was not so much the pleasure of escape, but like recognizing that, you know, it's okay to take space and like have space to like be with your big feelings. But what you're describing, the the conflict in this book and how it's managed and how it's reconciled, like that is where to me, this is the most fantastical. (laughs) Yeah, totally. This is complete fantasy because they do. They just take like two and a half chapters to be alone. And like you worry a little bit, but you don't get mad at the person for making you worry. And then you come back together and it turns out like you already understood each other completely. And the only problem is his tension around like guilt. And that's all going to be absolved here shortly. And Laura Beth, our heroine, is just a constant well of understanding and patience. Yeah, dude. Which in hindsight is frustrating. <laughs> but in the moment of reading, I was just like, okay. Like, and and I think that's one of the things that I'm coming to terms with more and more as I read romance and something that I think I've had to come to terms with in order to engage in this project is that sometimes the things in romance that to me feel really like, 
I hate it. That's so dumb. That's so stupid. That's so unrealistic are actually the things that make it pleasurable to read. Like, yeah, no, it's not realistic. It's fixing the problem of what is realistic Mm -hmm. and making it disappear. I think that's interesting because I think the way in which like the tensions in this novel were handled, I think you're right to say that they feel fantastical and mostly of that is Lara Beth's unfatiguing emotional giving and the fact that like she never holds Joshua responsible for his bad feeling or even his bad actions and he has to come around to his apologies in his own good goddamn time which can take quite a bit of time as the novel uh, progresses but I think that's one of the ways in which this book actually felt kind of different to me from other books that we've read wherein like here's a heroine who felt very much cast in the mold of like Corinthian's wife you know like the the way in which like that's for me the weirdest part like where religion really came through and I say religion and I don't mean spirituality I mean like the strictures of a church were those places of a Christian church of a Christian church specifically very specifically and a very strict interpretation of a Bible and a woman's place in a family and in a Mm -hmm. society like Mm -hmm. those moments where Lara Beth is like it's not my place to question you I'm like oh honey it is though this is your house and he's a house guest exactly (laughs) like you own your own fucking business (laughs) like those were moments where the project of this specific kind of Christianity were revealed to me Mm -hmm. and it was almost exclusively through Lara Beth And recall the fact that the one time that she does overstep is when she reaches out directly to his mother, air quotes, mother Mm -hmm. on his behalf. But that is forgiven because it's mothering in the project of motherhood. Yes. So the reason he decides to leave the church is that when he was really young, his dad passes and his mom becomes this very distant, cruel figure in his life. And when he goes to Laura Beth's farm, when he smells the lavender, he is reminded of this other female figure when he was even younger. So Laura Beth calls his mother and it turns out that she was actually his stepmother Mm -hmm. and she always resented him because he reminded his father of this first better woman that he had previously (laughs) married. And so she became cruel to him and Laura Beth discovered discovers this via his aunt, his mm-hmm. stepmother's sister, or his, I don't remember, his aunt in any case. And his mother, his stepmother does eventually apologize to him. But it's like this idea that biological motherhood is a far less precarious venture than mm-hmm. taking on the mantle of motherhood. But that also does this other action where the fact that his stepmother couldn't live up to mothering someone else's child, mm-hmm. and the fact that Laura Beth is doing exactly that mm-hmm. to an astounding degree mm-hmm. does that thing where we are measuring women by other women yep the heroine must always be the yardstick against which others are compared yep. and he is unable to make that comparison before he meets Lara Beth because he is not privy to the information that this is a stepmother as opposed to a biological mother so boo yeah dude the motherhood <laughs> stuff in this book is pretty tough and the biological motherhood and like the motherhood longing and like uh-huh. the fact that like Lara Beth constantly feels unfulfilled and like the only way that she can be fulfilled is through motherhood is really tough, especially when other characters that are indeed measured up to our heroine, like her best friend, Abigail, who has like a billion kids. She 
she's like, you have a full life, but like it rings hollow to Laura Beth and to the narrative because Abigail has so many goddamn children. <laughs> yeah. How could she know what it was like? Yeah. And so I think like the she way has fulfilled w- her most important purpose already. Right. So and it's easy for her to observe other purposes <laughs> from right. her pedestal of motherhood. Indeed. I think for me, like that stuff became pretty hard. You know, but I've got to say like that stuff is hard. That stuff I don't like. That stuff I didn't interrogate or realize until after I had read it. Mm-hmm. And that the experience of reading this book was so pleasurable in a way I was not expecting. And I think part of that is, you know, the project of entropy. I went in with a really open mind and mm-hmm. would self-correct every time I kind of bristled against something. And I think mm-hmm. by the second act of the book, that was a natural way of processing. Mm-hmm. And so I, okay, so I think I can understand why someone would enjoy this trope. Yes. I because can too. I think it goes without saying that a lot of romance readership is not about self-interrogating. <laughs> it's about being kind to yourself, you know, yes. allowing yourself to like the things you like. Yes. I do that too. Thing, we yeah. do that even oh, though of we course. talk about it for the show. Yeah. And like liking things that you understand are problematic, but not like having to call out the problem as you're enjoying the thing. Right. Like I think right. that's one of the things that romance really is good at. Or it's like you can escape into a lavender field in northeast Kansas in this Amish community and just like watch the clouds roll in for several mm-hmm. hours. And like mm-hmm. what a gift. What a pleasure. And it's OK that like the weird ass mom stuff and the weird ass religion like it doesn't have to come disturb the pleasure until it does and like if it never does that's cool and if it does later cool yeah even our hero has this problematic relationship with the trope itself right like he does not like the Amish church and so it just so happens that when he lands on their farm it's on the off week of like church services and so he gets to enjoy and reconnect this relationship with the church via a very pretty nice lady singing hymns he used to know. Yeah. Which, you know, I think about the utility of church all the time. I was raised in a Christian tradition of going Mm -hmm. to church on Sunday. Felt immense guilt when my parents started allowing me to make the choice to go to church or not. And I always overslept Mm -hmm. and would feel guilty about it. And thinking about, you know, if I were to have a child someday, would I want them to have that experience? Because there is utility, you know? And like the pleasure is all easily recreated (laughs) without having an actual church, like singing songs together, having someone talk about problems and give you a very simple prescribed solution. (laughs) That's not at all a simple prescribed solution. It's just like a moral tale and people reading poetry to you out loud, being with a group of people who you believe share your thoughts, but we don't recreate them anywhere outside of a religious tradition, you know, unless you go to like a Fleetwood Mac concert. (laughs) what a lovely example you know and it's funny because like I love that you brought up that scene because like the two sisters Lara Beth and Sarah are singing in the front room and the baby's between them and they're songs that he used to know and like he has like there's a there's like a struck chord inside of him Mm -hmm. and like I also grew up in an incredibly conservative church the Greek Orthodox Church like they didn't even do the service in English I like I tell you what every Easter there is a struck chord inside of me that's like I've fucking miss the punk 
pomp and the circumstance and the the songs and the smells ceremony. and the incense. The ceremony itself and beer. Ceremony is so like I think that's something we don't address ever is the importance of ceremony. Totally. And, I like and it's probably closely tied with the pleasure of reading a romance novel. Yeah. Like knowing the moves, knowing the outcome. Right. And which is why I think, you know, yeah. And getting I, a theatrical presentation of it. And a catharsis. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that struck really strong with me where I'm like, ooh, mm-hmm. I know what that longing is, even though it's like I won't ever really return to church because there's too much about it that I can't get behind. But I, I miss those aspects of it. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And, you know, going to a concert or a show, Mm -hmm. participating in something like that. Yes, that's really fun. But that's something so few of us can afford to do on a weekly or biweekly or a daily basis, which is what church and ceremony offers you. That's so true. That's so true. I was like trying to compare it to musicals, but I like only go to a musical like once or twice a year. So yeah, you know, I can tithe on Sundays. I can even not tithe and they don't say shit unless it's a mega church. I understand. I haven't been to one of those. I totally get it. And like a Christian tradition and I think religion in general is very come as you are. And that's also just so comforting because Mm -hmm. I I don't feel that way when I go to a lot of public shows, you know? Yeah. I don't feel like I can come as I am. No. And that's something that's special about a church as well. It's just all the other stuff. (laughs) All that other stuff. And you can't get away. Like I get why cults are popular. Popular. Oh, totally. Oh, my God. I get it. It's because just like- I, I would rather go to a place and celebrate like Gary, who I know, <laughs> <laughs> and be manipulated by Gary, who I know. I can see how people fall into it. Me too. And so I think religion was definitely a barrier to me enjoying this Amish romance. But I think the other barrier that we addressed at the beginning of the show, and I think we need to go in depth on and yep. kind of reflect on our feelings up reading the Amish romance is race. Boy, I have never noticed. And like, maybe this is like the failing because I, you know, I was trying to go into this open minded, but I also had thought where it's like, this is a space where white supremacy moves is like, they talk about this baby's blondness and this baby's blue eyes incessantly. Yes. It is a weird obsession. I was like, I don't know the Amish people of like my childhood and recollection. Not that I knew very many of them or interacted with them meaningfully. It's like, I don't remember them being a monolith of blonde and blue eyed. No, no. I mean, they're not a monolith in the book. That's true. Uh, either. They're dark haired uh, folks. But I will say it kind of goes without saying that they're all white. Yep. The woman who they interact, the English woman who allows them to use a computer every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Lady she's, Julie. She's white, right? Yep. I just want to make sure I'm not misrepresenting. No, there are no people of color in this book. Yeah. Other romance readers, reviewers, people in our orbit have talked about the fact that this is a subtle project of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting. And I think, though, the women who regularly read Amish romance, I'm sure they're there are some of them who are straight up white supremacists. Yes. But I think for the most part, these are people who don't feel comfortable with racial difference. Yes. So this reminded me a lot of what I was reading when I did my thesis is probably why fanfiction.net was on the front of my mind at the beginning of this. Part of my project was looking at how fanfiction could be a space of pure pleasure and racial difference, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of fanfiction absolves 
you know, any kind of racial tension between white characters and characters of color and has them engage in a romantic relationship that often celebrates the difference, often lingers in the difference, Mm -hmm. savors the difference, but it doesn't come freighted with all of the, you know, civil rights, income inequality and housing inequality. Mm -hmm. Amish romance represents a uniquely white opportunity (laughs) to absolve oneself of racial difference and to participate purely in pleasure. Mm -hmm. And it's problematic. I mean, it just is. Mm-hmm. You know, thinking about like even Kathleen Woodowis, the problem of racial difference is even in her very white romance novels. She is constantly confronting issues like slavery and paid labor and racial inequality. You know, I can think of other books that are also Lily White, like Joanna Lindsay, like any of her Viking series. No, even those had characters of color in them. In my mind, I think like romances from the earlier days of mass market publishing Mm -hmm. are largely white. But I'm actually straining to think of another romance that we've read that doesn't have a single character of color, even in as a marginalized position. Define at the heart didn't have any characters of color. Okay. So there you go. So like the medieval romances often don't, even if that's Mm -hmm. historically inaccurate. But I think like what's striking about Amish romance is that it drops us into modernity and strips us of the problem of racial difference. I think that's one of the things that I thought a lot about because like I can name like a bunch of romances off the top of my head that are even more recent than Johanna Lindsay or Kathleen Woodowis. Like Grace Burroughs' Duke series doesn't have any characters of color. Caroline Linden, the book mm-hmm. that we read for the podcast didn't, even like A Week to Be Wicked doesn't have, by Tessa Dare, doesn't no. have any characters of color. Like there's this move, especially in historical romance where it's like, well, oh, there aren't, you know, people of color. We're going to deal with other social issues. But I think right. the, the move here that feels like very distinct is like we're in a pocket of non-modernity within modernity yeah yeah we then get to like live in a pocket universe free of the problems of race but we're also free of the problems and I think the reason it is such a dog whistle yeah the pitch is lowered a little bit by the fact that they go to this white lady's house and use her computer like they are still cheating the system (laughs) like these characters don't really deal with problems of not having technology no they don't deal with problems of having to churn their own butter and they don't deal with problems of being a singularly white culture no and and yet they have these opportunities to cheat when it comes to technology but there's never a moment where they cheat and like you know interact or have a friend who is of color right even they don't even have like a marginalized identity like a marginalized character who has a marginalized identity I think you're right to call Amish romance a dog whistle and I think one of the ways in which it is so insidious is that the whole aesthetic pleasure of like a return to pre-modernity of like a return to God and like women in a particular place and also to have that so racially isolated because at the end of every Amish romance they get together like the HEA is that Joshua returns to the church and they live in their barn raising butter churning lavender bliss Mm -hmm. that pedestal of whiteness that pedestal of the HEA I think is definitely the dog whistle because like as it's lionizing this way of life as like a return to simplicity a return to like things that quote unquote matter Mm -hmm. it's also this like real retreat into total whiteness and valorization of whiteness 
Yeah. And I think there's also something there of the fact that, and this might be particular to the Cedar Grove series, but the Amish of Cedar Grove are understood as a more progressive sect than the one that she's going to go and join in Idaho or Ohio, Iowa, Idaho and Ohio. I would like to personally apologize. (laughs) I will never get you correct. I barely get Minnesota and Wisconsin right 50% of the time. I am so sorry. Idaho, Iowa and Ohio. I, I got into a full on argument about where Boise was the other day. That's fair. I was like, it's in Iowa. (laughs) No. No, it's in Idaho. Anyways, like, so there is this conversation about how the Amish of Cedar Grove in Kansas Mm -hmm. are more progressive than the Amish in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And the text certainly positions progressivism as positive. Mm -hmm. Like she is having to make a big cultural, moral, almost sacrifice to go and find a husband and potentially have a family in Ohio. Ohio mm-hmm. because she's going to have to give up even more comforts and a little bit of social flexibility, mm-hmm. which is demonstrated whenever our hero gets taken in by the law mm-hmm. after Gotham. Yeah. After some gossip. The the hot goss. And so I think that positioning as progressive makes it even more like, what? Yeah. (laughs) But this isn't progressive. Like, this is inherently non-progressive. What you're talking about isn't even Diet Coke to Coca-Cola. No. It's like Coca-Cola with a melted ice cube in it. (laughs) Like, you can't possibly differentiate. That's such a good way of thinking about it. You're totally right. It's Coca-Cola with a melted ice cube. It's not Diet Coke. It's not. And you can't swing it that way. It's just slightly flat. So let's talk more about like the fantasy of conflict. And that's the other thing is like fantasy exists in romance. Like I am able to forgive a great many things in any romance novel. I am able to forgive wild historical inaccuracies. I am able to forgive even inaccuracies about my own home city. Tune into the next episode. Why not do a Mennonite romance? If you want tractors, if you want them to be able to use a computer anyways, you know, but you still want to keep it accurate. Like there are these kind of simpler cultural groups that are also more racially diverse. But I think that's the thing. Like this isn't. That's not really the project. That's not the project. There is an undercurrent (laughs) of white supremacy. Yeah. And like, I think, you know. Because there are other options. There are other options. And like, there are even other versions of this. Like the fact that the town is like actually pretty integrated with the Amish community. The Amish kids go to the public school. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They have this father-son baseball game that the town throws. It's not just the Amish community. It's like there was every opportunity to like throw in some like token color. And not that I think that's a good idea. I'm just saying that like that was also not the road taken. Like there's no... Yeah, exactly. I just want to acknowledge... Yeah, this almost feels like an excuse to not have any characters of color. Yes. Almost feels like this is an excuse. Yes. We know it's an excuse (laughs) because we're able to do the math. Yeah. (laughs) But once again, I'm a white lady, so I'm able to read this and enjoy it Mm -hmm. because I'm able to not take that on as I'm reading it. And that is what we call privilege. Yep. Um, So just something to think about. (laughs) It is something to think about. Reading romance. As you're reading romance, like coming from a place of privilege, I too. As you're reading sci fi, also. Oh, yeah. 
and the, fantasy. And also Westerns and also <laughs> mysteries. Yeah, maybe we just need to talk about race more in general. I like and marginalized identities. Who knows? What? Because it just feels obvious to say, but I guess it does need to be said. And I think we just have to keep saying it. I think the fact that like you and I really did go into this with open minds as much as possible and like to have our suspicions confirmed about how dog whistly this white supremacy is like in some ways I was surprised by how insidious it was and like how palatable it can be and like yes yeah the rolling hills of like this setting and this aesthetic and the characters themselves and I think like that's all the more reason to be on your guard about it it's obfuscated by this like beautiful clean cotton linen totally Soft lavender fields, whimsical pumpkin patches, father-son baseball game. You know, all of this pleasure allows us to obfuscate the racial problems. I do want to talk about the final move where we see the gossip chickens come home to roost. The bad part of this Amish society in Cedar Grove and then how it absolves itself via masculine intervention. Okay, so as I said earlier in the episode, Joshua has been pretty forthright about his status as a person with a conviction and he tells Laura Breath pretty much immediately. It's on his like morning after the big storm and the rescue Mm -hmm. and she keeps that information from her sister who's much younger because she's like, Sarah doesn't need to know. It's nothing. It's his place to tell her. Right, and he does. He does confide in Sarah many days later. And Sarah, I think, rightfully is hurt that her sister didn't tell her. But Sarah's also much younger. She's a teenager and wants to be cool like all the other teens. Uh And she's got this. And also sees herself as a protector of her older sister. Totally. Who is too beautiful to live. Too beautiful and doesn't have the sense God gave a goose. Yeah, as they always say. As they say. And so she at church tells her little cadre of friends that she's not only living with an outsider, but he is also a person with a conviction. Her friends obviously can't be trusted with that information. And it comes all blurting out at the church social. And it's terrible. Yeah. Rumors are spreading wild and fast in the community spread entirely by the women folk. Yeah. Which is also like another biblical move. There's this whole thing in the Bible where Paul tells women not to gossip. I have thoughts on gossip. We're going to get into another day. But like this is also a move where I felt the church intrude where it's like, look at these gossiping biddies and look at the harm gossip does. So what then happens is the lawman (laughs) shows up because they finally found Joshua's stupid car at the bottom of the lake. And they're like, you know, it's a crime not to report an accident. And he's like, no, I didn't. And they're like, we're going to have to take you in. Where'd this money come from? Can you prove who you are? How do we like? And he can't. And he can't. And everything gets really spiraled from there. And Lara Beth is already on the bus to Ohio because they can't be together because he can't join the faith. I will say that like that scene, like where she like actually straight up got on the bus and she's like, I won't take your kid. And like, you're going to move on. I was like, holy shit. Are they not going to be together? Yeah. I mean, look, here's the thing. There are really carefully and effectively crafted moments of suspense in this novel. Even in the very beginning when the car goes into the creek, I'm like, oh shit. Yeah. They're gonna die. And then this moment when Laura Beth gets on the bus to Ohio, I'm like, oh my god. I know. Are I there, was like, are, are there impressed? secretly a hundred more pages? <laughs> I know. I was like, there must this- be. How will this ever get rectified? <laughs> yeah. How will they ever get through this? 
Yeah. So that like 100% was a real moment of like suspense, um, which feels crazy to say. Well, like if romance has taught me anything, it's that a book can be good and still be bad. Yeah, totally. So Lara <laughs> Beth has to be taken off the bus so that she can go down to the police station and verify that he was in the accident at this particular time because there was a yeah. bank robbery where $6,000 was taken, which is about how much money he had in his car. And yeah. Anyway. It's all fixed. She it's proposes. It's all fixed. Uh, the, also, the reverend from the church comes to like vouch for him and bail him out. Yeah. Like the men folk of the community come together to support the Englisher to undo the damage that the women did. And to be honest, like, that's how it's positioned. That's how it's formed. Yeah. Even, like, in the scenes of physical intimacy, the kiss between Laura Beth and Joshua, the fault is positioned on Laura Beth because he's just a man. Yeah. And she could not resist him. And that's her failing. Yeah. And, like, further, it's like, she's the only one who's going to be able to turn him to the church. It's like women's responsibility for the full faith of the family to stay. And like, I feel so like, ugh, about all of this. I feel so ugh when I'm talking about it and when I'm giving it like the slightest scratch. When I poke the feeling of, huh, that I had while I was reading it at all, it all collapses into a huh. Yes. But the thing is, it's just like, ugh, ugh. Ugh. Like, I don't know, Isabeau. I don't know how much onus I can put on people to interrogate things that they like because there's so few pleasures. <laughs> Especially right now. I think that's actually a really good place to like think about this and position Amish romance. Where it's like, if what you're looking for is truly an aesthetic pleasure that is also a sweet romance, might I maneuver you into westerns which also not like Mm. racially whatever but like certainly better and certainly not a straight-up denial of race might i position you into other kinds of big space thinking subgenres i think the pleasure of this was really not only the aesthetic but also like the sweetness of it and also just like the farm community of it and I know that there have to be other spaces in romance that do that yeah I know there are yeah Beverly Jenkins westerns I'm thinking of Tempest specifically Mm -hmm. you do get like the pleasure of competency you do get the pleasure of big space certainly race is something that's discussed our main characters are both black and there is of course the Chinese rail workers Mm -hmm. attacks that happen. So it has race in it. And Mm -hmm. race is something that is to be tackled and reckoned with, but it's also something that's pleasurable. Mm -hmm. And it also centers female-powered groups Mm -hmm. and groupthink. Men don't need to come in and clean up a problem. Women aren't held responsible for all of the issues that are permeating the culture. And so in two moves, we rectify with a Western and I think still keeping some of the pleasure, some of the aesthetic pleasure. I think although it's not sweet, there's there's it doesn't fade to black. So maybe that's not great. Yeah, But I, I have to imagine that there are Westerns that are sweet. Like I just haven't read widely enough. And this might be a moment where we can send some asks to Erin from learning the tropes, learning the tropes, because I know that she loves Westerns because like I agree, like like I said at the very beginning, I read the opening scene of this storm coming up and like the sheer joy of watching the clouds build in the distance yeah. and then break over. I felt so at once like such a homing sensation where I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, 
I'm really going to like this book if this is what it feels like throughout. And it's like, yeah. yeah, scratch that surface. And it's like, oh, the scratch and sniff sucks. It smells like white supremacy. Yeah, <laughs> cool. yeah, exactly. Don't need this again. But like it is. It is. But I think that was the greatest pleasure of this book is the aesthetic of it. Yeah. The like homey, small town uh, simplicity, which I feel like I should come up with a better word. But that is so nice. And to be honest, not something I I can say I've really taken pleasure in quite so much as I do in this book. At first, it felt very like a historical romance to me. But like the thing that romances do very rarely is they talk about the work and the space as pleasurable. It's almost always that embroidery is a chore or it's almost always that the making of a dress is something that I didn't want to do. And it's like and I think like that that's a worthwhile conversation because a lot of this is truly busy work. But like, yeah. To have but it's it never dis- presented as busy work. Right. It's and like this can take as long as it takes. Yeah. Where I think like even in A Lady's Guide to Celestial Mechanics, where she was really doing work that she enjoyed, mm-hmm. it still felt like work mm-hmm. in a way that the work, which is very transparently work in this book, doesn't mm-hmm. feel that way. It feels mm-hmm. like living. Mm hmm. Yeah. And maybe that's something to think about in terms of like how other genres are discussing work where it's like always a chore and like the pleasure of the work itself or the work well done is a space that we could like open back up again. Because I think romance is and should be considering women's labor and women's work. But there is And there has been, you know, recently historicals that have characters who work exist. And I think there is a lesson to, you know, because romance is a place of pleasure and the pleasure doesn't merely exist in the relationship between the main characters. I mean, like reading something where like work didn't feel like work Mm -hmm. (laughs) was immensely pleasurable. Yeah. And, you know, not to show my own ass too much, but I always feel like work is work. So sexiest part. Sexiest part is the hands touching on the butter churn. It's the one scene that I desperately wanted to exist in Amish romance. Mm -hmm. It existed and very finely structured uh, book as far as tension goes. Mm -hmm. Very fluttery in my belly. I was right there with Laura Beth pondering, did he mean to touch my hand? I Mm -hmm. guess it doesn't matter, but I want it to matter. Mm -hmm. That was very good. I agree. That was really good. And I was so fun fucking happy that a hand grazing on a butter churn actually happened. Yeah, I mean, if you it go seemed for it, almost like a practical joke. I mean, it's that if gimme. it would occur, it would have been like so obvious too on the nose, but it was just on the nose enough. Just on the nose enough. Yeah, that was really good. I have to say I loved after their kiss, they just held each other. And like, yeah. <laughs> I know that sounds so dumb, but like there's like the catharsis of the kiss itself, but there's also like, this can't be, you know, like there's this whole thing where he's like, I'm going to give up the baby. I'm going to go work and you're going to go to Ohio. And like, we're just going to have this like treasure of a moment. And she just like tucks her head under his chin and just like listens to his heartbeat and I was like fuck yeah so romantic so romantic like that's the thing is like this book that I appreciated and I can almost understand why I've only noticed it in this text in this Amish romance Mm -hmm. is that time is not really a factor like everything in this book can take as long as it needs to take totally that's exactly right time is not a factor in this book so they can spend two and a half chapters apart they can spend a whole chapter going back and forth watching the baby and planting pumpkin seeds Mm -hmm. they can spend a whole chapter and a half just 
holding each other after a kiss. It really allows like things to linger and feel not rushed or a way to get to something else. Like it is the thing. All of this stuff that oftentimes feels like a stepping stone to another part of a romance, right? Felt like this is the romance in this book. This is it. And like how special that can be. Yeah. It felt really nice. It felt really low press. Low press. The stakes were, yeah. Even though the stakes were pretty high, they just like never felt like, never felt that tough. Yeah, and I think that's kind of my weirdest part. (laughs) Yeah, like the stakes are actually very high. (laughs) Yeah, like the stakes never feel high, but there is all of this. Everything has been ratcheted up. His ex-wife is dead. Yep. He's left with this baby. He Mm. then puts the responsibility of the care and keep of this baby on this stranger in a community that he intentionally left because of cruelty he endured as a child. I mean, I could go on. The fact that they don't have access to technology, that Everything takes so long. It feels high pressure. It feels like the stakes are incredibly high. I think like there are moments of tension in the book, like, but mm-hmm. it revolves around like them not ending up together mm-hmm. or that first scene of drama, mm-hmm. that really high pitched first scene that I think allows everything else to feel kind of like, oh, relax, you know? One of the things that I intentionally didn't do but wanted to do was like, ooh, this book makes me really want to rewatch Witness with Harrison Ford. (laughs) And I fought that because I have like one of the movies that I watched in like my film 101 class and like whatever. I think people talk about it a lot. I was like, I'm not going to watch it until after I'm done with the book and then I'm going to think about it and I'm going to think about how the movie moves of the stakes when time doesn't matter and time doesn't matter is not actually a thing because there is a ticking time clock like he has a job that he has to be to in six weeks and then it moves down to one week and so like time does function in the novel and it does a particular kind of work but it doesn't ratchet up the emotion the way you think it should or the way it maybe it was deployed to do so and I think part uh-huh. of that is because of this resolute aesthetic of like soft pacing even when a barn burns down and there's like a kid caught in the hayloft like I was like oh they're gonna get the kid it's gonna be all right let's see how this works out and I think like one of the things that I remember most clearly from Witness is like the very last two scenes where like Harrison Ford and the woman that he's been involved with just stare at each other for like a full minute and a half and we timed it in my class and I remember this being very moving where it's like this is so much dead air in film but nothing is dead about it I felt the weight of it but not the pressure of it I think the fact that this book is able to have such high stakes and you don't feel the pressure of it like the lack of pressure mm-hmm. whenever you poke at it is what emphasizes all of the choices and all of the problems yeah. that Amish romance people who don't like it and have never read it have reason religion male supremacy white supremacy yeah it's all there yeah those three things that make it uncomfortable to think about make it comfortable to read mm-hmm. and that's deeply upsetting yeah <laughs> has given me a bit of a uh, identity crisis because I did enjoy it. And now, you know, having to acknowledge the fact, which I think is such a huge part of this podcast is being like, I liked it for Mm -hmm. bad reasons and having to trouble the water of that pleasure. I love that. Troubling the water of that pleasure. Have your pleasure. It's okay that you liked this book and it's okay that you never read an Amish romance again. And it's okay if you read three or four more, like whatever. It's just like- More than five? I'm not speaking to you again. (laughs) 
No. As we talked about earlier, like there is this real striking of a chord, right? Where Mm -hmm. it's like, I don't think I'm ever going to return to church, but once a year, I feel it very strongly. And I feel it for all the reasons that it's good. And I also won't return because of all the reasons that it doesn't work. And like, I think part of the reason why this feels pleasurable is because it really strikes the society's systemic chords that are meant to be struck here where it's like women can fall into the arms of strong men and like work matters and like, Mm -hmm. you know, all that other shit that we've been raised with for thousands of years. Another weird part is that it feels so novel, right? Like Amish people having sex, like in a (laughs) sexy genre, like love between Amish people. Like, isn't that weird? And so I think whenever people encounter it, you know, critics or thinkers or just thinking about stuff that I've seen and, and I've read, about Amish romance. Mm -hmm. And maybe we'll include this on a blog, just a little cluster of further reading. They rarely address the fact that they're like, you know, all of this stuff is super weird, right? Because Amish people don't do sex stuff, you know? (laughs) Like us regulars. But no one is addressing the fact that like, what do Amish do? Which is, (laughs) you know, embrace patriarchy. Yeah. Embrace conservatism. Embrace whiteness. And then because it's buried under all the weird stuff of like being in a buggy, all of those underpinning structures become less visible. Right. Because it's been otherized. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're able to enjoy it and probably take pleasure in the idea of like a simpler time. It's like when we talked about shifter romance and I was like, well, maybe people like really assertive, masculine, traditional, like macho Macho characters. Yeah. Macho alphas. You take pleasure in that and like a regular human being. And that's scary. That's Wolf of Wall Street. That's American Psycho. But if he's actually part bear. Yep. (laughs) Like the weirdness of that obfuscates all of that weird underpinning, you know, all of the like really problematic, super familiar, I should say, underpinning that hurts and it allows us to just take pleasure in it. But like, it's not, you've got to, oh man, you just got to trouble the water, like be engaged in what you find pleasure about it. Ask yourself some questions. Yeah. That's what this is. Trouble the Especially water. Especially a couple of like white hetero ladies like us. Yep. Whenever we like something. <laughs> <laughs> gotta trouble the water. We've gotta trouble the water. We've gotta ask ourselves why. And I think that's important work. All right. So romance or no mance, Isabeau? Honestly, it's a romance. It's such a bad romance, but like for Amish, I feel like it's pretty par excellence. It does all the romance moves. I yeah. don't want anybody to go in with their eyes closed about all the problems. I really did not like the religious stuff. It did make me face myself about why I didn't like sweet romance. And it did help me work through that bias and prejudice. And so for those reasons, like, I think this is a very strong novel. I don't need to ever read anything Amish again, because I think I would prefer a Western. I think it's hard for me to be in a space with a heroine who's so help meaty. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But like, for all those things, this was a distinct pleasure to read. I read it very quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's a good structural romance. I did also reconcile some of my prejudices against sweet romance, even though like I don't think we've ever disliked something because it was a sweet romance. Mm -hmm. I think we've always just liked sweet romance. And then if people were like, do you like sweet romance? I'm like, no, 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 not for me, not for me. And, you know, that's silly. 
going to say it's a no man's. Yep. Here's why I'm landing on the side of no. It's actually a conversation I had with a friend recently and she was talking about a co-worker of hers who her son really enjoyed reading Animal Farm. He's like mm-hmm. 12, 13, something like that. He read it for school. And so she got him 1984 in a Brave New World. Oh, okay. Which we are we are conditioned to be like these are good books. Are they good books I for was, a 12-year-old boy to read? Well, I, and yeah, I don't know. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. I would say no. Like, I would allow a 12-year-old girl to read them because a 12-year-old girl, her identities are attacked yep. and not bolstered by these texts. Mm-hmm. And so she has to go, you know, mentally on the defensive of it and is therefore engaging in critical thinking about the text immediately. I don't know what I would do. A 13 year old boy who, if he's straight or even if he's gay, mm-hmm. thinks that the sex that he's attracted to has some secret power over him that causes him to publicly embarrass himself all the time. Mm-hmm. And then he reads a book where and it's like, yeah, doesn't that fucking suck? Or is like, yeah, we're going to fix that because sex is a pure utility. You know, like thinking about that kind of text in the hands of a 12 or 13 year old boy like maybe his parents can talk to him about it but do you know who else he's going to talk to it about and whose opinion he cares about more other 12 or 13 year old boys and god you have no control over those conversations so this exploration of my own personal neuroses (laughs) comes to the conclusion that I would not recommend this book to people because I don't know how you're going to take it Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I'm worried that you might just take it at face value yeah, that's fair. That's super and fair. And just think like, this is so nice. And one thing I've learned is that if people really love something and they have an initial reaction and they just fall in love with it and they think it's great, anytime that is questioned, they'll mm-hmm. go on the defensive of it. Yeah. As opposed to saying, oh, why is that question being brought up and really mm-hmm. addressing it seriously? And I don't know if I could trust every person out there to hold two truths at the same time. Yeah, you know, I get that. Can I, I'd like to change my answer from... Because <laughs> I, I think that's actually interesting. And like, until you actually said it, I wouldn't recommend this book. And I'm like, oh, that is what woe versus no is doing. These are recommendations. Mm-hmm. It's like, I found very distinctive pleasures in this book. And I think like, I get why it's pleasurable. But like, yeah. you're right. I would never recommend this book to anyone. This yeah. is not at the top of any of my lists in terms of yeah. recommendations, even though it hits all of the points yeah. that I think make a woe. Do you know what? I would recommend now that I'm thinking about it Hmm. I would recommend Heartbeat Braves instead oh for sure because Heartbeat Braves allows space for love Mm -hmm. allows time to enjoy each other to enjoy physical touch to enjoy the kind of repression that comes with like a workplace romance it still has the pressure and drama around you know working in a nonprofit. it is a slice of life which Mm -hmm. I think Amish romance seems to be working as that allows time and space for breath Mm -hmm. so I think Maybe try out Heartbeat Braves. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously Tempest is a good one, but I'm going to think about other Westerns or like other Kansas or Montana books. The aesthetic, like how can we get the aesthetic? Because I do think Heartbeat Braves has that feeling, that breath, but I think the aesthetic is one of the more appealing things about this, which I didn't ever think would be true of a romance novel. Neither did I. It's just another way to think about it now and one that I'm like really happy that like this opportunity sort of blew this open for me to 
to think about the aesthetics as pleasure. Yeah. Because like settings in general have really just been like the drapery. <laughs> so now like, oh, what work yeah. are you really doing and why have I been able to ignore you? Like, I don't like the story of every Wes Anderson movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but I'll mm-hmm. go and watch mm-hmm. every Wes Anderson movie because I like the way it looks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the Darjeeling Limited. Mm-hmm. I don't love that movie. Mm-hmm. But if it's on TV, I'll stop and look at it because oh, yeah, it is so, so like arrestingly beautiful. And I did not think that would be a thing for romance novels. But this is one of those books that I'm going to have to really think my way out of mm-hmm. because I think I would stop and look at it, you know, again. Mm-hmm. All right. No man's no man's. It kind of sucks. Clearly such a talented writer. Oh, yeah. But just not painting in a palette I can return to or yeah. feel comfortable recommending. And I think that's right to think about it as like recommendations, like woes or that's the work that they do. Yeah, talented writer, good story writing, but like, boy, howdy. If we tell people <laughs> to never loosen their principles, then, you know. <laughs> this is a long one. All right, with that. Loosen your stays. But never your principles. Mwah. Mwah. Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah.